Hello and welcome to Highly Contested. This podcast covers some of the hottest topics in the world of football and basketball, where our crew gives our highly contested takes on these topics and supports our takes with facts. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with George. Say hi, George. Good morning. Some of today's featured topics include, are the Trailblazers in trouble after Game 2? Are the Mavericks in control of their series? And does Rob Gronkowski look like his former self? Let's dive headfirst into it here on Highly Contested. Let's start with the Lakers' surprising blowout win against the red-hot Trailblazers. The Trailblazers had won nine of their last 11 games, all of them decided by 10 points or less. The Lakers put a stop to their hot streak by blowing out the Trailblazers behind Anthony Davis's 31 points and 11 rebounds. So, George, on a scale from 1 to 10, how dominant was Anthony Davis in Game 2? How dominant was Anthony Davis? Hmm. I'd give him a 10 on the dominant scale. He led all scores with 31 points and did it in many fashions, such as shooting the three in the paint in transition. When AD is aggressive, he can affect the game in every way from offense to defense and making other players better on the court. He was three of four from the three-point line, had 11 rebounds, three assists, a steal, and a block in only 29 minutes. He's the first Laker to score 30-plus points in 30 minutes since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he did that in 1987. So it's always saying something when you can do a historic stat in a Laker uniform because the Lakers have had so many great players in the past. Mm. Uh, He helped... He helped get this dominant win in a game where LeBron only had 10 points, which again is rare. That never happens where LeBron has a a 10-point game in a playoff and gets a win in this type of fashion. Uh, The game got out of hand quick, and by the fourth quarters, the Blazers already had their subs in. So again, I'm going to say Anthony Davis gets a 10 on my scale. What about your scale, Drew? So I'm going to give him a 9. Uh, I believe for him to get a 10, he's got to have a, dominant, a Donovan Mitchell game one type of game. Uh, and on the opposite end, he, he only scored 31 points. Um, but I, believe, I don't believe he should get an 8 either. So this is where my scale goes. He deserves the 9 because, of his, because his dominance was on display this game. He was hot from the field, 13 from four, uh, from thirteen for 21 from the field. That's 62%. Three of four from three, 11 rebounds. I mean, he was so active on the glass that he was winning rebounds for his teammates, just tapping it to them. The reason why I give him – the reason why I did not give him a 10 was because the man was so hot, I feel like he should have demanded the ball more. I guarantee you if Shaq or Kareem or any other big man was that hot, they would have demanded the ball every possession. Now, I'm going to talk about what I gave him in Game 1 to give perspective. I gave his Game 1 performance a 7. In this game, he was much more dominant. In that Game 1, he had 17 free throws, and he got 12 of his 28 points off of those free free throws. Not a good free throw percentage, and it showed that he really only scored 16 points when you take into account that he got 12 points from the line. Uh, so he only scored 16 points from the field. 
In game two, he scored 29 of his 31 points from the field. And the two free throws he got, he, they both came off Ben once. He was dominant for sure this game. They had absolutely no answer for him, and he knew it. Both times they fouled him, he still scored. Just let that sink in. They couldn't even foul him and keep him from scoring at the same time. So for those reasons, I gave him a 9. I feel like for him to deserve the 10, he should have had more of a Donovan Mitchell-type game where he just took the game over entirely with, uh, with the score representing that too. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that just because I'm a, I would much rather have him a Donovan Mitchell game two than game one because I would hate the Lakers to be down 0-2 in this series. Um, so I'm just not going to agree with he needs a 57-point game and a L to go with it. I'd much rather pair this, um, what do you have, 31 11 rebounds. Mm-hmm. I, I'd much rather have this kind of game than a 57 and a L. But I mean, his his plus minus was also a plus 32 in the game, so he he was dominant both sides of the uh, court, offense and defense. And then you also compared him to not being as dominant as maybe Shaq or Kareem because he didn't demand the ball as much. But th- this is where I'm saying he deserves a 10 also because. He didn't just do it with his offense. He made his teammates better. He was giving them timely passes, letting them get open shots, and letting them make plays too when the double teams would come. He was crashing the boards, getting offensive rebounds, and getting nice uh, putbacks. So I, I just feel like he dominated in other ways. Maybe not like as a Shaq would have dominated, but Shaq is also probably the most dominant force we've ever seen. Um, but I still give him a 10 just because he affected the game in almost every way. And again, I'd much rather have him a a 31-point game and a win than a 57-point win or point and a loss. Yeah, the plus-minus was a good – what was that plus-minus again? It was 30 – 32, plus 32. Plus 32. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, I'll give him that for sure. So that's a a good point to make. and you said you said yourself that Shaq was the most dominant player uh, to play the game, and that's why for big men he's my gold standard. He is his type of performances were a ten out of ten. So that's why I believe that this was a nine. I believe that the question is how dominant was Anthony Davis. So I don't think it matters whether or not he gets a win. That's why I gave Donovan Mitchell a 10 for his game one performance. The question is, how dominant was that player in that game? And I believe Donovan Mitchell was more dominant in his game than Anthony Davis was in this game. Yeah, I'm still going to disagree with that because Anthony Davis was so dominant in this game and made such a difference where they didn't even have to play in that fourth quarter much. And the Blazers had already their subs in. They already gave up that game. So, I mean, he took the life out of the Blazers in that game to where they couldn't even play. They had to sit on the bench and put in the backups. That's how dominant he he was uh, last night. Great points on both sides. Let's keep it on the Lakers-Blazers game, which was one to forget for Trailblazers fans. The Blazers were blown out by the third quarter where Damian Lillard suffered a dislocated index finger on his non-shooting hand. He would leave the game to get x-rays, which came back negative. 
After the game, Lillard described the injury by saying, it's just sore, a little bit tender to the touch. So, George, are the Trailblazers in trouble after game two? Yep, I'd say they're in big trouble, Drew. Uh, in, in game one, they were held to only 100 points. In game two, they only scored 88 points. Holding a team to 88 points in the modern NBA is almost unheard of. Rarely happens. The Lakers have shown to be able to shut down and play solid defense against the Blazers. The Blazers continue to look tired and now going into game three with a hurt Damian Lillard. I don't think his dislocated finger will be a huge factor in how he plays because I've seen this with many stars in the past and they play through this in the playoffs and they still perform at a high level. So I'm not so worried about his finger, but they were looking tired. They're starting to break down. While the Lakers seem to be improving their offense, normally the lo- and normally the lower seed would feel pretty good in this situation going back home for game three, having tied the series at one apiece. But there's no home court. There's no fans. So going to game three tied up isn't going to feel different than going to game one or game two. They're not going to be able to get energized by that home crowd. Uh, I got many concerns going into game three for the Blazers offensively and defensively. Yeah, so I looked at uh, their game two performance and asked myself that question, are they in trouble? And to answer that question, they're definitely in trouble if Lillard's injury is serious enough for him to miss games. Now, he did say that he was not missing game three. They asked, uh, what's your status for game three? And he said, oh, I'm playing. Uh, Now, for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume his injury isn't serious and answer the question by saying they're still in trouble. The Lakers needed to make adjustments, and they made their adjustments. I had the utmost confidence that they would. Now it's time for the Blazers to make adjustments, and I'm not as confident that they can. The Lakers guards were suffocating Dame and CJ the whole game. Uh, The entire time, the game was still considered a game. And the difference was this time, those guards on the Lakers were making enough shots on the other end. The Lakers shot significantly better, 47% from the field, as opposed to 35% in game one. They didn't go to the line a lot, but they made 90% of their free throws. The Lakers were forcing the Blazers to do a ton of ISO, and that resulted in the Blazers only having 14 assists for the entire game two. The Lillard era Blazers have a history of not making adjustments in the playoffs. In the last two years, they were swept by the Warriors in 2019 and also swept by the Pelicans, led by Anthony Davis, in 2018. This was the first time in a long time the the Blazers were punched hard in the mouth. And it's going to be hard for them to make adjustments because they haven't had to make adjustments in a long time. They've been winning games their way, and it's been working for them. Pair that, though, with their history of not being able to make adjustments, and you have a big problem. For these reasons, I believe that they are in trouble regardless of Damian Lillard's injury. What are your thoughts, George? I agree with you on this one, man. They're they're in big trouble. Don't know how they're going to bounce back, how they're going to answer this on game three. Like I said, it's, it's going to be a different field than the normal playoffs because normally game three, you go back home, you feel good, you got it, you stole a game on the road. But 
you ain't going to have that same feeling this time. It's going to feel the same. So it's going to be interesting to see how they come out. If they're going to come out with that energy. And I think too, that as, as I mentioned, they do not have the greatest track record of making adjustments, which is why I believe that they won't make, I don't think they'll be able to make the adjustments in time for game three. They might not even do it for game four. Oh yeah. And like I said, I mean, this is a game where we're talking about LeBron only had 10 points. I mean, I can't even remember the last time he only scored 10 points, you know, mm-hmm. like if he, if LeBron scores 20 points, that's like a bad night for him, you know, and he's getting ripped apart by all the media members. So the fact that he was able to walk away with 10 points and a victory in this fashion, I mean, I Blazers, they're in big trouble, man. I agree with you there. Yesterday, the Clippers and the Mavericks played game two of their best of seven series. The Mavericks started out hot, but the Clippers slowly came back, making the game close until the end of the third quarter when the Mavericks started to pull away. The Clippers never gave up and continued to fight through the fourth quarter, but the Mavericks would get it done behind Luka Doncic's 28 points. So, George, are the Mavericks in control of this series? Um, yeah, I'm going to say yes, but just to correct you real quick, they didn't play yesterday. They played two days ago. Um, oh, yes, that is correct. Yeah, but I would say that the Mavericks are in control of this series. They started the first half with a dominating 17-point lead by Luka. Luka ended up getting into foul trouble in that second half and only played nine minutes. Luka continued his career with a, another historic night, becoming only the second player ever to score 70 in two playoff games. The Mavs role players stepped up huge in this game to help get that victory and tie up the series with the Clippers. The second unit, led by Trey Burke, Curry, and Boban, combined for 47 points on 19 of 31 from the field. The Clippers are having major defensive challenges guarding this historically great offensive team, the Mavericks, which is kind of... no. I wouldn't say anyone even predicted that. I mean, Paul George and... Why everyone's saying how great defensively they are, but they can't seem to slow down the Mavericks. Um, like I said in a previous episode, their offensive rating has been 116, number one in the NBA history. But in the playoffs, it's actually gone up to 120 before the Porzingis uh, ejection in game one, and then a rating of 119 in game two. Also, like I stated previously, Porzingis is that X factor that I've been watching, and the Mavericks have been amazing with him on the court. The Clippers are having other issues besides defense. Their assists are down to 17 assists in these playoffs compared to 23.7 assists in the regular season. They're playing way more ISO. The Mavericks got to be feeling great going into game three, knowing they should be up 2-0 if it wasn't for that ejection. So I, I think they're in the driver's seat. I think they got everything rolling for them, confidence, everything. What are your thoughts? So before I answer this question, I want to start by saying I was very impressed with the Mavericks defense the entire game. They were closing in on shooters, rebounding, and defending the paint very well. They were giving it their all out there, and it was fun to watch, man. Now, to answer the question, no, they are not in control of this series. 
I said before the series started that this was either going to be a sweep or a gentleman sweep, and I still stand by my claim. The Mavericks have won their one game, so I fully expect the Clippers to come out now and win three straight. Late in the first quarter, from 146 left in the game to 31 seconds left, Paul George commits three fouls in that minute and 15 seconds, and he has to leave the game. Now, at that point, he shot two shots and didn't make either of them. He comes back in the game in the second quarter at 727 and leaves it again at 557, only a minute and 30 seconds. Uh, He doesn't shoot a single shot. Now, in the third quarter, he shoots more shots and misses both of them. He finally makes his first shot of the game with 811 left in the third and still never got into a rhythm. He finished with 14 points on 417 from the field. Now, I believe that's a big deal because Paul George is one of their primary scorers, and he, in my opinion, is their best shooter. You could debate between him and Lou Williams, but it's, it's going to be a debate because they're both great shooters, and Paul George is a great asset for them defensively. I believe he's a better defensive player at this point than Kawhi is. Now, there is, not, there is one moment I remember vividly late in the game in the fourth quarter, with 2.50 left in the game, Paul George came off a screen by Montrez Harrell, and uh, Montrez Harrell, and I forgot who was guarding Paul George at the time, but instead of going over the top of the screen, the Mavs player decides to go under. Now, at this point, Harrell had started rolling towards the basket, and they call moving screen on him because he contacts the player when he rolls towards the basket. Side note. I don't know how big men can even play in this league anymore when you get a foul call for every time you touch a smaller player on the opposing team, but that's a debate for another day. Now, Paul George had squared up for his shot as the refs blow the play dead, and he sinks it from three. This was a killer play because the Mavericks had just called a timeout because the Clippers were on a run, and it would have closed the gap to seven with the Clippers on a roll with well over two minutes to play. But... Then there was the offensive foul by, Her- by Harrell. Then Marcus Morris gets called for a shooting foul on the other end, which they reviewed. And I personally thought it was clean because Tim Hardaway Jr. initiated the contact on his drive to the, bas- to the basket. Uh, it almost felt like the refs were trying to make up for game one and they felt the game slipping away from the Mavericks. So they blew the whistle on some questionable calls. Now, I'll give the Mavericks a ton of credit because the Clippers did not stop even after that. And the Mavericks closed this game out. But when I look at this game, I saw the best defense the Mavericks played all season. And I saw them close out a game, which is something they struggled with all season long. Do I believe that they can continue that defensive intensity and close games out again? I just don't buy it. And I don't buy that they can when this team is not known for defending well and closing out big games. So I would love for them to prove me wrong, but as of right now, I do not believe they have control of this series. Man, you you know what I would love to see? I I would love to see Kawhi play more consistent defense on Luka. I want want to see him guard Luka because Kawhi is supposed to be this lockdown defender, one of the best two ways in the game. And yeah, he guards Luka like maybe on switches or here and there, but... I want to see if he can go and shut down Luca the Don because he is just tearing him apart. And what really impressed me in this game was Luca, like like I said, he got in foul trouble early, didn't play much in that second half, and they were able uh, to still come out with this victory. 
So that that's why I'm saying they're in control. And man, I'm impressed with the Mavericks. I might even have to switch up my pick. Originally, I had Clippers in six. I don't know, man. I might have to switch up to like the Mavs in seven or something. This is becoming a series here. I'm not jumping ship yet. I still I still believe that the Clippers can make the adjustments, and I believe they 100% will. Uh, now the question, or not the question, but you were making you were making this claim that. Kawhi needs to guard Doncic more, correct? I'd love to see it. Yeah, I think that – I just don't think that that's going to be something that is in his best interest. Uh, I don't believe – I don't believe he – it's not that he doesn't want to play defense anymore. I just don't believe that he um, – or sorry, I'm I'm sorry. It's not that he can't play defense anymore. I just have a feeling he doesn't want to play defense as much anymore. That's that's what I get from his body language. I feel like every time I watch him play and I watch him on defense, he always seems to guard the opposing players, um, like the opposing players' guards or forwards who are who just aren't as dangerous and. They're always kind of, you know, sitting in the corner, not really being active offensively. And he always guards those players. So I'm not sure if I'm not sure if he even wants to play defense anymore at this point in his career. I don't I, know though. I, I hope that's not the case because if that's the case and what you're saying is true, I, I feel like that would be bad for that that locker room and that chemistry because he already shows that he doesn't want to play back to backs. He doesn't want to play a majority of the season. And we kind of saw a little rift you know, during the regular season where players are kind of like, Hey dude, like come to war with us. You know, we need, we need you out here. So if he, if that's mm. the case and now he doesn't want to play defense on the opposing best player. I mean, if I'm his teammates, I'm looking at him like, Hey dude, like, are you really with us? Are you, are you going to war with us? Like you're the number one man, you know, you're known for locking down a LeBron James in the finals, you know, you're, this is what you're known for is your defense. So we need you to, you know, lock down the best player on the other team. And if what you're saying is true, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what he's thinking or that's what's going on. But if if that's what you're claiming, uh, man, I I would hate to be his teammate and he doesn't want to play back to backs. He wants to play, you know, he doesn't want to play a full 82 if he can. And now he doesn't want to play defense. Oh man, I, I'm just me personally. Like if I was his teammate, that that would not really fly with me. To be to be fair on him, uh, when Paul George was on the bench because of foul trouble, he did end up scoring 35. But uh, as we've been talking about, he scored those 35 points on the offensive end. On the defensive end, he was not not as active. So um, I. I agree with you. If it was me, um, I know he's the star, but you, you still got to play defense, especially if you're wanting to. Especially if you're wanting to win a ring. Um, oh, yeah. Bottom line, it, bottom line, you got to play some form of defense. Oh, so, yeah. I believe 100 that I believe 100 that he will eventually um, step up. Though I'm just kind of. Thinking in my head, I wonder how it's going to get done, though. I wonder if even Doc Rivers has to come up to him and say, hey, we need you to step up defensively. So, oh, yeah. And, I mean, being that number one player and, you know, that uh, finals MVP, you know, I mean, th- this, is what, this is what you do, you know. Like, imagine 
you know, some of the other greats saying, nah, I'm not going to play defense on the, the best player. They get criticized. They get, you know, imagine Michael Jordan saying, nah, I'm not going to guard the best player when it matters. Oh, we'd crucify him. Imagine Kobe Bryant. Oh, we'd crucify him. They already crucified LeBron in recent years when supposedly he wasn't playing defense. So, I mean, if you're that number one guy and this is what you're known for, your your bread and your butter is being a lockdown, I mean, you you just got to step up and – and go for it, guard the best player. Mm. Yeah. I will say though, I will say though that in both games that I've witnessed, I I fully believe that the refs in both games were um doing I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but they were doing a pretty good job of controlling the game with uh with their whistles. I believe that they're they're making foul calls um every chance they get. I'm not I'm not necessarily I mean I think I personally believe it's a bad thing because this is playoff basketball. I believe, you know, you don't, you don't got to go full nineties basketball, but I believe that you can definitely let them, you know, give a little contact with each other. So I think that if that improves the refereeing uh, and if they, and if we notice the improvement and that the Clippers notice the improvement, I think that they definitely will, play much better defensively because that's their style. Their style is they need to be able to, you know, ruffle some feathers on the other team, uh, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So, Drew, if, if you're Kawhi's teammate and you, you're sticking to this claim that he doesn't want to play defense, how are you feeling? I'm walking up to him and I'm saying we need you. This isn't this isn't a if, and, or but about it. If uh, If – if I'm if I'm one of his teammates, uh, and we'll, we'll say that I, I'm at least in the rotation because <laughs> I'm not I'm not sitting on the bench the entire game. Um, yeah, I don't know. He, he's a robot man. He ain't a man of much words. So I'll give you that, uh, I mean, give you that Terminator stare. Yeah, probably. But I'm still gonna. I'm still. And I think that I think that the good thing about this Clippers squad is I think you feel that there's not really. There's not really a rift, not a rift, but there's there's not really like, um, for lack of a better term, click, clicks, if you will. There's not really clicks with like the starters as opposed to like the bench players. You know what I mean? I think they're all pretty well in sync. And, you know, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that their bench has been good all season. And so they're start. And so it helps the starters out a lot. But I don't think that there's, you know, there's these clicks. Um, you know what I'm referring to? Like where you know, the bench players kind of hang out with the bench players and the starters hang out with the starters. I mean, I, I don't see Kawhi hanging out with anyone on the team, honestly. So, I mean, he might be in his solo click. He might be in a solo click, but I believe that um, all the other players, you know, they're, they're all very close with each other. Yeah. And I think that they could, you know, do it in a way where it lets, it lets Kawhi know like, Hey man, this is, this is the playoffs and you know, we need you. You, you had all those games this season to rest and not, we're not trying to, we're not trying to bash you or anything, but we're trying to tell you that we do need you because you know, you are the best player on this team. So we need, we do need you. I I will say to that. I mean, the Clippers is full of dogs supposedly. Right. So if that's the case, I don't think they will be too shy to voice their opinion to Kawhi. I agree. I just don't know how Kawhi will take it, you know, because he's kind of like a 
a shy or I'm not going to say shy, a quiet guy, you know, so um, he, he didn't take kindly when the Spurs confronted him back on his injury. But again, that that's kind of different. That's you're questioning my injury and my health versus my play. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see how this unfolds. I, I'm feeling a lot confident in the Mavericks, though. I, I do feel like they're in control. So the Jazz took on the Nuggets Wednesday, looking to bounce back from their devastating loss in Game 1. The Jazz, led by Donovan Mitchell's 30 points, took full control of the game in the second and third quarters, leading to a 124-105 to victory in Game 2 to tie the series. George, does Jonathan Mitchell have enough in him to overcome the Nuggets? I'm going to say no. Donovan Mitchell doesn't have enough to overcome the Nuggets alone. So by saying that, I'm saying if he drops another 50-piece in a game like game one, and we've seen him do this multiple times, you know, he I feel like he drops another 50-piece, he's just going to walk away with another loss. He's going to need more help from his role players if he wants a chance to win or make this series interesting. Uh, just like game two where he had less points with 30, but he had the team involved. He had eight assists. Mike Conley is going to be coming back to the bubble, so we'll see how that plays out. I think he'll be a nice veteran presence in late games, and he'll help close those uh, late game, close game situations. The Nuggets, in my opinion, they got way more talent. They're deeper. So if one of their players has a bad game, a bad night, someone else could easily step up to the plate. Whereas on the Jazz, if Donovan Mitchell has a bad game, who's stepping up for the Jazz, you know? He's a great player, but he needs help from his supporting cast if they want to play well in these playoffs. I was impressed with uh, Jordan Clarkson. Really stepped up in that game for him off the bench. Mm. But, yeah, he he. there's no way he could do this alone. Not in the playoffs. Regular season, sure. But playoffs, he, he needs help. Yeah, so I'm with you. No, I do not believe that he has enough in him to overcome the Nuggets. I believe the Jazz, as a team, have enough to overcome the Nuggets, but Donovan Mitchell cannot do it alone. And games one and two have showed us exactly that. In game one, Donovan Mitchell had 57 points, the third most of anyone in postseason history. While that by itself is a tremendous achievement, he didn't get the win. The rest of the Jazz players had a combined 68 points. Now let that sink in a little bit. Donovan Mitchell had 57, the rest of the Jazz had 68. And the Jazz had 18 assists in total as a team. Not that high by their standards. In Game 2, Donovan goes for less points, but he assumes the role of floor general and facilitator on his team. This led to Mitchell ending the game with 30 points, while the rest of the Jazz combined for 94 points. Much more different in the second game than in the first game, as opposed to the Jazz players besides Donovan Mitchell. The Jazz moved the ball better, too, combining for 32 assists as opposed to their 18 from Game 1, which overall led to the win in Game 2. In Game 1, Donovan Mitchell was on fire, but the Jazz lost the game due to his team not showing up. In Game 2, he scores less points, but the Jazz team overall rose to the occasion, and it resulted in a win for the Jazz. Mitchell cannot do it alone. The Jazz need to step up their game, for game for three more games if they want to win this series back to you george yeah um i think we're we are both in agreement on this one uh, i'd much rather see him score less 
I'm talking about Donovan Mitchell. I'd rather see him score less and facilitate more than, you know, try to do it all by himself. We've seen him. I mean, yeah, it looks nice to go drop 57, but I'm sure getting a win feels a lot better than dropping 57. Um, So, yeah, I just love to see him, you know, score a little less. I mean, he still got his and got 30, which is still good. But he scored, what, 17 points less and racked up some more assists, got his teammates going. And I think that's the key. You know, you get your teammates going early, you get them confident. And then in that fourth quarter, they can really help you, you know, close out. And that's when you can take over as that dominant presence. Take over that fourth once your team is feeling good. And then if you, you know, you get double teamed, you get trapped, you could easily kick out. And they're already feeling good. They're feeling confident. You know, they can come up big for you late game. Yeah, and to your earlier point uh, with Mike Conley coming back into the bubble, I believe that will be a huge step in the right direction for this Jazz team because Donovan Mitchell seems like the only person who can really, uh, what were what were the words? Uh, be a facilitator, I think it was right that we. I think the words that's the words that we've been yeah. using. Uh, I believe that he's the only real player on this team that can do that. At this point, I mean, we've seen some flashes of it from Joe Ingles, but we know that we know that Mike Conley is fully capable of doing that, and we know that Mike Conley steps up in the playoffs. Uh, we, I actually, I actually gave my take on that in the last podcast. So I believe that it'll be a huge, um, I believe that it'll be a huge jump for this Jazz team to have a veteran presence like Mike Conley, as you mentioned. Agree. With the NFL season getting ready to begin, one has to wonder which QB will improve the most heading into this season. So, George, who's the most underrated QB heading into this 2020 NFL season? It's a good question. There's a lot of QBs out there that, you know, kind of get slept on, a little underrated, flying under the radar, um, get disrespected even. So this will be interesting. I I really want to hear what you got to say. Uh, But my pick for the most underrated QB going into the 2020 season, I'm going with Matt Stafford. Before his back injury Mm -hmm. last season, he was one of the most productive quarterbacks. He he had 2,499 yards, 19 touchdowns, and five interceptions before his back injury. Uh, he has a, a nice, solid receiving core with Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones. And they also drafted a running back in that second round who could take some pressure off Sanford, DeAndre Swift. Um, since Stafford has been in the league, he's actually been surrounded with, or he hasn't been surrounded with the solid all-around team. So his win-loss record, you know, really isn't all to be put on him, although he is the quarterback. So a lot of the blame usually does go to them. Um but he still plays well. His career touchdowns is 256 compared to 134 interceptions. And those are his career numbers for that. So that's pretty good right there. He's also thrown for 4,000 yards in seven seasons and has finished with a 90-plus QB rating six times. Now, that's pretty impressive for a QB that rarely gets mentioned uh, if Stanford could stay healthy this season, 
he could have a monster season since he's shown up and he can uh, be elite and efficient. I think efficient is the, the big one for him. Yeah, uh, I, I fully agree with you that I feel like Stafford gets overlooked for sure. Um, I think the big reason for that is because he does have the numbers, but I don't feel like those numbers equate to wins, which is why I feel like a lot of people overlook Matthew Stafford. Oh, yeah. I'm going uh, to be – sorry, uh, go ahead. Uh, hold on. Yeah, yeah, before we – I mean, uh, before we, you know, we move on to your pick, uh, let, let's just kind of like break down – my pick first so that we could focus on yours. But um, back to that, you know, the wins and losses, I do think that plays a role. I think that's just because part of it is, you know, he, he's in a tougher division. You know, he's got Aaron Rodgers in his division. So he's, you know, the one that gets talked about. You know, the Bears usually have a nice defense going on. Minnesota is usually right there in the mix, too, with a good defense and a solid offense. Um, so, yeah, I mean – I think it's a, one of the not the toughest divisions, but it's definitely not an easy division. So those win losses don't come easy, especially when you're going against some of those teams every year. Okay, now I'm going to spring this one on you because uh, I'm actually curious on what your opinion is uh, on this one. Who are you taking for your quarterback? Are you taking Kirk Cousins or are you taking Matthew Stafford? Um. Okay. Um. Well, that's a good question. What team do I get? Do I get the Minnesota team, or am I getting the? Or, or are you saying like this is like I- I'm drafting, and I get to pick out of these two quarterbacks? What, what's the scenario you're giving me? So it's the, it's the same team regardless of what quarterback you get. It doesn't matter what team. We can we can say it's the New England Patriots team for the sake of argument. I mean, it doesn't matter what team. But the question is. Who are you moving forward with as quarterback? You know, I, I'm going to take Matt Stafford. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. I, I'm going to take Matthew Stafford, too, over Kirk Cousins. Kirk I is believe, nice. Oh, yeah, go ahead. So I believe that Matthew Stafford at this point, um, he's established himself well as uh, the second best quarterback in that division. And when Aaron Rodgers uh, – we'll talk about this in a later podcast, but – when Aaron, when Aaron Rodgers either retires or leaves Green Bay, I believe that he will be the best quarterback in that division. So, Yeah. I mean, um, Stafford, he's shown he can be elite and efficient, you know. The, the only problem is it's, it's – with his problem, it's really the team. You know, he, he needs a better, like, offensive line. He needs a better defense around him. Mm. Um, where Kirk Cousins, he, he's nice. Like, he gets the job done, but I don't think he, like, you know, jumps off your screen like, wow, do you see what he just did? I mean, that, mm. that might just be my personal opinion on that. But, um, yeah, I, I think I would definitely take Stafford over Kirk Cousins. Yeah, I agree. He's not the flashiest of quarterbacks, too, but he does get the job done. Maybe that's another reason why he's overlooked is because, as as we mentioned, he's not as flashy as, say – you know, your Lamar Jacksons, your Patrick Mahomes, you know? Oh, yeah. Now, for my pick, I'm going to be a biased Jaguars fan, and I'm going to say Gardner Minshew is the most underrated quarterback heading into the 2020 NFL season. He's getting little to no attention, and people are even counting him out, saying that the Jaguars are going to tank for Trevor Lawrence. 
But let's look at some of Minshew's accolades. In a turmoil-filled season for the Jaguars in 2019, Minshew played in 14 games and started in 12 of those 14 games. He ended the season by breaking the Jaguars' franchise record for most passing yards by a rookie without playing all 16 games. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, the Jags' franchise record, really? That's not that serious? While it wasn't that impressive, and I will agree with you on that, while it wasn't that impressive, it's very impressive that Minshew was able to break that record in not in a season where he, where he did not play the full season. Throughout the season, there were Rookie of the Week awards given to the top-performing rookie of that week. Minshew won seven of these Rookie of the Week awards. He won the most, and it wasn't even close. Every other rookie who won the award won it only once, including Rookie of the Year winner Kyler Murray. My next point, he's a natural leader and his teammates feed off his energy. Newly acquired tight end Tyler Eifert even had this to say about Minshew's leadership. He seems like a guy that the offense wants to rally behind. He seems like he's a fearless leader and you need that when you're on the field. His past accolades and leadership combined with a new look offense heading into this season under offensive coordinator Jay Gruden are reasons to believe that he is the most underrated quarterback heading into this season. What do you think, George? I'm, I agree with you, man. And, you know, biased or not, I, I want to hear you, you know, talk and support your man because I, I'm a fan of old porn star Minshew, man. That guy's just, he's, he's just awesome. You know, just to even watch, like, you throw all the stats away, like he's just a cool guy, you know, just to even look at, you know, like <laughs> he's underrated just for that, if you ask me, man. I agree. Um, but I mean, back back to actual football. I mean, let's let's dive in, man. He he was a six round pick, right? Mm-hmm. In his twelve starts, he had a six and six record. And I mean, that's pretty impressive for a six round pick, you know. I mean, some of these first round quarterbacks can't even do that you know they get bounced in and out of the league they get traded you know so and it's not like the Jaguars are like a great team where you know six wins is just expected like this is a team where you know six wins might not have been projected for them and Minshew went out and uh you know did his job and won that starting job over Nick Foles even though he started off with that injury but he proved that you know he could be that man and he also had 21 touchdowns to six interceptions. I mean, hey, dude, I signed up for that any day from any quarterback, you know. Mm. That, that's that's throwing good a good percentage right there. And um, he also led the team with three fourth-quarter comebacks. So, mm. so that's telling me, like, you know, the pressure of the end game, you know, isn't phasing him. You know, it can, he could be down in that fourth quarter. He's still going to go out there and try to win that football game. He's got – that ultimate confidence, you know, give me that jog strap and that, that mustache any day. Mm. To a few of your points, the first one I'm going to talk about is the fact that he is a six-round pick. Now, Rookie of the Year was given to Kyler Murray, and I believe he deserves it just as much as Minshew. But the thing that 
the thing that really grinds my gears about the situation is Minshew wasn't even in the conversation. And I believe that the main reason, the main reason for that is because he was a sixth round pick and Kyler was the first overall pick. So I believe that they were already counting him out and never just brought him back into the conversation. Now to your other point, he had those three game winning drives. I want to talk about one of those game winning drives in particular, one of those game-winning drives came in the Oakland Raiders' last game at the Oakland Coliseum. This is a this is a very revered place for Oakland Raiders fans, and the only reason why anybody would argue, any Oakland Raiders fan would argue that it's a good idea to leave, is because of the fact that it's just old. They loved that Coliseum. They loved their black hole section in that Coliseum. And they came out with a ton, the fans, they came out with a ton of energy in that game. And Minshew still came back as time was, as time was winding down in that game to seal the deal with a, with a touchdown to Chris Conley. I just think, I just think that he's got a ton of swag. I think that he just ex- i just think that he just exerts confidence exerts energy for his teammates to feed off of and that's why i believe to this 2020 season with new offensive coordinator Jay Gruden Jay Gruden likes what he sees from Minshew so i fully believe that he will have an even better season than his rookie year oh yeah and then i mean to top off i mean another reason i feel like he's underrated i mean it's Jacksonville you know what I mean? Like, who's, mm. who's really, like, paying attention if you're not a Jacksonville fan, you know? But mm. another crazy stat, man. So, Minshew had the third highest grade um, at 94.7 among all quarterbacks who threw the, who threw the ball, traveled 20-plus yards downfield in 2019. The only players that were ahead of him was Russell Wilson, with a rating of 98.9 and Deshaun Watson at 98.2. So, I mean, just Mm. think about that. The only two players who threw better for him on those deep passes was Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. And nobody, Mm. nobody is talking about Minshew. That's just crazy. And he was a rookie. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. that's just crazy. And then another one, man, Minshew had the best, passer rating among qualified quarterbacks on throws um he he uh, completed 24 of 49 deep attempts for 818 yards five touchdowns and guess how many interceptions drew mm, tell me zero zero interceptions so mm. this this boy he's a bad man he's he's accurate you know what i mean and old baby shark, 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 he's going to be eating this year, man. I agree. I agree with you. 100. No, 1,000%. The Buccaneers head coach, Bruce Arians, spoke on Rob Gronkowski yesterday saying he looks to me like he was five or six years ago. Gronk has been retired since the 2018 NFL season. George, are you buying that Gronk looks like his former self? Oh, I'm buying, and I'm buying in bulk. Give me that Costco card. I'm buying in bulk, my friend. Mm. Um, he took a full year off, right? So 
I'm going with Bruce Arians. He probably looks fully recovered. He looks like himself again. And uh, he's back with Tom Brady. And we already know their connection. And especially in this weird year, shortened offseason, where Brady seems like he's having some issues learning the playbook. He's still building his rapport with other players. Gronk comes in as a safety blanket and will be a proven, reliable target down the middle of the field and in the red zone. We've seen this in the past with the Patriots, the difference in games with and without Gronk there. He's a huge impact player to the team when he's on the field versus when he's not. He's a great receiving threat, and not just that, but he's a great blocker. Uh, We got to remember, Gronk is only 31 years old, so it's not like he's super old or anything. His body is recovered, and when Bruce Arian is saying great things about him, saying he looks five, six years younger like he did, uh, Bruce, he's one of those guys that he t- he tells you how it is, you know. So I, I don't have ish- uh, any issues with him saying it. I believe him. I have no reason not to believe him. Um, Bruce Arians doesn't just do that normal coach talk that we hear from a lot of coaches. He usually tells the media, you know, what he's thinking and how he's thinking. Uh, for example, in the past, we've seen him talk about Winston. He says, oh, they could win without him if they had another quarterback, and then what do they do right after? They sign Tom Brady and replace him. He also talked about Godwin last season, saying that he's going to be a 100-catch guy. He's uh, never going to take him off the field. And it turned out to be true for the most part. I mean, Godwin rarely came off the field. He played on 82% of those snaps, had 86 catches. But we got to remember, we got to put this in context, he only played 14 games. So if he would have played that full 16, I mean – I have no reason to believe he wouldn't pace out for those 100 catches and that percentage goes higher. Um, Bruce Arians would have been truthful about what he said. Uh, Moral of the story is I'm going to believe him until proven otherwise. So I do think Gronk is looking like his former self. Interesting take. Uh, So the question is, are you buying that Gronk looks like his former self? No, I'm not buying it. Even when he was healthy back in 2018, Gronk was slow and unproductive by his standards. Now, some people are saying his body has had time to recover since then. He looks just as fast as ever. You don't get faster as you get older. Uh, Not in the NFL, at least. And even if his body has fully recovered, he's always been injury prone. At his age, it takes one good hit or one wrong turn and he is no longer playing again. Let's look at some of his injury history. August 15th, 2009, he has a back vertebral disc hernia that kept him out the entire season. That's where his back issue started. November 18th, 2012, he has a forearm fracture and misses five games. January 13th, 2013, this is just two months after the previous injury. He fractures the same forearm and it requires three more surgeries to get it healthy. May 17th, 2013, he suffers a back vertebral fracture while recovering from that broken arm. And he doesn't play it down again until week seven of the following season. December 18th, 2013, he suffers a grade three torn ACL and MCL. In 2016, he suffers a back vertebral disc hernia, the same injury that kept him out in 2009, and he ends up missing the rest of the season plus playoffs. Now, I just gave you six different injuries. That's not even half of his injury history. 
He is injury prone, and that's a big deal because, as they say, the best ability is availability, and injuries make you unavailable. Add that to the fact that he was healthy before he even retired and was still slow and unproductive, and you have enough reasons to believe why he will not be productive this season. This is why I'm not buying that Gronk is his former Pro Bowl self. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm going to still disagree with you, and I'm going to say, I mean, a lot lot of those injuries. So here's the thing with, like, football. If you go into the season with these little knick-knack injuries, you know, like lingering injuries – you're not coming out healthy, you know? So I feel like a lot of those times where, you know, people want to say he's injury prone, like, yeah, sure, you can say that. But if you're going into the season already hurt, I mean, you ain't coming out better than you came in. So this year, you know, he's coming in fresh, took had that whole year off. And so he's not going in hurt. I think he'll be able to uh, make a difference. He'll be his his old self. And like I said, I think Tom Brady is just going to trust him in those big situations. Now, the other thing that you said was uh, you don't get faster the older you get, right? You lose some of that speed. Mm. Um, let, let me ask you this question. Is a, if, is a 4.440 pretty fast? Yeah, it's pretty fast. Would you say Tyreek Hill is pretty fast? Tyreek Hill? Yeah, he's pretty fast. All right, so Terrell Owens, the big T.O., at age 46, right, just had a race with Tyreek Hill not too long ago and ran that 4.4 and was keeping up with the cheetah himself. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know. It's pretty fast for an old man. So, I mean, I, I still think we've got to see what Gronk has left. He's only 31, so it's not he ain't too old. He's still kind of young. Um so I'm still buying. I'm buying lots of shares of this. I feel like you're going to lose money in those shares. But me personally, um, so I know that you, I know that you said that, oh, he's, uh, he's, he's got some rapport with Brady, which that is facts. He does have rapport with Brady, and that is going to play a factor. My, like I said, though, my biggest concern is just whether or not he can stay healthy and also uh, whether or not his body has actually recovered. Because as I mentioned, he was, uh, he was pretty healthy back in 2018. He was still slow and he was still unproductive by, those sta- by the standards that he set for himself uh, earlier in his career. So that's why I'm not necessarily buying that he's his former Pro Bowl self. Now, can he still be a threat? Absolutely, he can still be a threat. And I believe he will be. But his former Pro Bowl self, not buying, not buying any of that stock, my friend. I'm buying lots of stocks, a lot of shares. Going all in on this, man. Sign me up for some grunk. (laughs) Well, that's all the time we have for today, everyone. Thank you for joining us here on Highly Contested. We will post a podcast every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So be sure to stay tuned, keep with it, and be prepared to be highly contested. Have a good one.